What was Abraham Lincoln's plan for freed slaves in America after the war? Well, we'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. If you want to support the show, go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. It's free of charge to enroll. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll, and you get great content if you purchase it, right? So this podcast is free. That content is not, but when you buy that content, it helps keep this podcast free. So I've got over 20 classes available for purchase there. They're all great. And of course, I've got a new class, Reading Thomas Jefferson. So you're going to want to get that. If you're on my email list, if you go to brianmcclanahan.com, B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com, give me an email address there. You get a free ebook and a free audiobook when you do that. Plus, you get the coupons at McClanahan Academy. So it's a win-win there too. And I do send you emails. Don't unsubscribe from it. I do send you emails. That's how I keep in touch with you and let you know what's going on on this show at McClanahan Academy, all the things that are happening so it's my one way to communicate with you on a regular basis. But McClanahan Academy is my educational portal. And if you like this podcast, you're really going to like the content at McClanahan Academy. Also, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Leave a text review where you can. If you're watching on YouTube, leave a comment. Click on the little super thanks button under the video if you like it. You can throw a few pennies my way or at brianmcclanahan.com or at anchor.fm. Lots of great ways to support the show. And I do appreciate all that you do for it. All right. Well, let's talk about the topic. And of course, it is Abraham Lincoln. And this is an article that was published in the Washington Post. Now, the first question should come to mind is, why would the Washington Post publish essentially a hit piece on Abraham Lincoln? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on here. Number one, we've seen the Hulu series on the 1619 Project become, I guess, fairly popular. I mean, people are watching it. People are talking about it. Of course, that's a New York Times Series. So the New York Times has gotten a huge boost in terms of ratings because of that project. It was a moneymaker for them. They produced a book, a television series. You've got Oprah out there now pumping the New York Times. Nicole Hannah-Jones has become a B-list celebrity because of it. So you've got all of that in the Washington Post is being left behind. So how do you capitalize on the 1619 Project, when you didn't do it, well, you write articles slamming Abraham Lincoln, which, of course, the 1619 Project does. Of course, curiously enough, this particular piece I'm going to talk about, which was in the Washington Post, is on a book by Phil Magnus, or at least Phil Magnus took part in it, uh, that Nicole Hannah-Jones hates. Right? That's the other thing that's curious about this. Now, initially, when they were doing the project, she had consulted with Phil Magnus on that book and this part of Lincoln's history. And then when she made, in the 1619 Project, made some outrageous claims about slavery and capitalism, Magnus started criticizing it. And, of course, Nicole Hannah-Jones then laid into Phil Magnus. And they've had a long-standing Twitter debate. I mean, it's been years since the 1619 Project came out. Uh, Magnus and Nicole Hannah-Jones have been going at it, I guess now about almost four years. So it's funny and I think interesting that the Washington Post, both funny and interesting, that the Washington Post would publish this kind of riding the coattails of the 1619 Project, but maybe turning the screw a little bit by actually 
getting into this issue using Phil Magnus, kind of the foil to Nicole Hannah-Jones now. I don't know if that was their intent, but certainly uh, there's part of that to it. And I think the Washington Post simply wanted to be involved in this larger debate. Now, first of all, what does this say about American history at this point? We know that the Lincolnians, the Straussians, the neoconservatives, and even some on the left would recoil at the thought of criticizing Abraham Lincoln. And I'm sure all of the Lincolnites are going to come out of the woodwork with this essay. It's going to really rile some people up. And of course, the Washington Post is interested in getting eyes on their newspaper. And so this is going to bring out the John Meachams and other people of the world to criticize this. It gets press. It gets people talking about the ridiculous newspaper, which again, I subscribe to so you don't have to. Uh, also, I subscribe to the New York Times, so you don't have to, because I like to read their garbage. But uh, this this will bring all these people out of the woodwork to defend Abraham Lincoln. Alan Gelzo will come out on the right. I mean, all this is going to happen. And what they'll do is they'll simply sweep this aside. Right? They'll just, ah, well, you know, Lincoln did that, but he, he turned his eye. He turned away from it. The piece actually gets into that. The end line is interesting in this piece, the final line, because there is an answer to the question. They would say there isn't, but there is an answer to the question, and it was something that Abraham Lincoln said to Alexander H. Stevens in 1865. And so we'll talk about that. But the point of this essay is to criticize Lincoln's colonization efforts. Now, let's put this in a larger historical perspective here. Colonization was the preferred method of Virginians to end the problem of slavery and diffusion was also the preferred method to end slavery. In fact, Jefferson had made it clear that bringing a slave from, say, Virginia into a Western territory is not expanding slavery. It's simply removing a slave from one state and putting the slave in another. You're not really expanding slavery. You're just moving a slave. And he believed that by doing that, you would lessen the, the uh, prevalence of the institutions, say, Virginia or North Carolina or South Carolina, and so it eventually would die off. You wouldn't have as many slaves there, so it would die off. He thought that diffusing the institution over all of these territories would actually prove a salutary benefit in the abolition or eventual emancipation of the institution. And of course, to correspond with that, he believed in what he called expatriation. You have to take them and get rid of them, move them to Africa, South America, somewhere else, even the Western territories, if these areas were not going to be under the control of the United States which, of course, he thought they should be. So they're going to have to be a foreign expatriation. Henry Clay believed in this. James Monroe believed in this. So many Virginians believed in this. Jefferson Davis, in fact, argued the same exact position in the 1850s. People who uh, talk about Jefferson Davis and Southerners at this time don't really read what they say because they were saying the exact same thing. Taking a slave from Mississippi and moving it to Arizona is not expanding slavery. It's simply moving a slave from Mississippi to Arizona. It doesn't change the condition of the slave or the condition of the territory. It, it, it doesn't do that at all. You're not, you're not adding to the population. That could happen anyways. In fact, you could argue that by moving them there, it takes if you don't have many slaves there, eventually that population would kind of die out in that area. Who knows? And it would have to adapt to the circumstances of these areas. Could it be, could slavery exist in the desert southwest? Could slavery exist in an urban environment? All of these were huge questions 
in the 19th century. Now, Southerners were certainly trying to figure out how to do it. There's no question about that. They wanted slavery to be adaptable to all kinds of different circumstances because they did believe that slavery was a progressive institution. They wrote about it. They thought that slavery was the institution, the way forward for labor because it avoided the problems of free wage labor and Marxist revolutions, essentially. So there is that element to it, too. And all of these arguments, of course, have been circulating really since the 1700s. And in the United States, what became the United States, they began in New England. I mean, that's the interesting thing about all this, too. The biblical defense of slavery actually came out of New England first. And then, of course, it would be transferred to the South as slavery continued to grow in the South. But the economic part of slavery was something that Southerners were also concerned about. How would this thing remain economically viable? So that's one argument aside. Lincoln was part of that. He was a Henry Clay Whig. Lincoln believed in the same thing that Henry Clay did. Now, he didn't believe in forced expatriation. He didn't think you should take them around them up and force them out of the United States. But he didn't think they should be here. And he thought that expatriation or colonization was a really good idea, just as many members of the founding generation thought this. So we can look back at this and say, well, my gosh, that's, uh, that's horrible for these people. And of course, you know, people like Frederick Douglass and others were adamantly against it. And there's a reason why, because as this article points out, as people ended up in Haiti, the conditions there were pretty bad. In fact, what's amazing about this is that the people that were slaves then in the United States and then sent to Haiti actually said the conditions in Haiti were worse than what they had here in America because they didn't have anything. They had no shelter. They had no clothing. They really didn't have much in terms of rations or food. This is a whole complex part of the institution. It was the paternalistic side of it, the, the cradle-to-grave care that Southerners would often argue was beneficial for the institution that these people immediately missed when they were taken out of the South and put into Haiti. So th this is a complex issue, uh, one that you can't just make you know, little black and white characterizations of it because there's so many things going on here, so much nuance in the institution and the way people wrestle with it, both black and white in America, is interesting and of course, of course also has a fairly lasting legacy in America because we're still talking about it. So let me get into this piece because it is just a fascinating story. It's by Sidney Trent uh, at the Washington Post. And in fact, as I'm looking at this, it had you know, hundreds and hundreds of comments. And I'm not even going to look at that because I'm sure a lot of them are pro-Lincoln. Why is the Washington Post you know, following the woke agenda, et cetera, et cetera. Or the you know, Washington Post goes woke again. Uh, but this is stuff libertarians have been pointing out and Southerners have been pointing out for years. Lincoln shouldn't be worshipped the way he is. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. In fact, Lincoln was never really conservative at all. This is the left eating their own. Lincoln is a Girondin, right? He wasn't radical enough. The radicals didn't like him, but he's the pathway to get the radicals in power. So it says, On a mid-April day in 1863, hundreds of African Americans, hoping for better lives, boarded the Ocean Ranger at Fort Monroe in Virginia. The ship sailed away from a nation in the deep throes of the Civil War bound for Ilavash, a small island of about 20 square miles on the, off the southwestern coast of Haiti. Bernard Koch, an entrepreneur and Florida cotton planter, had promised the roughly 450 newly freed black immigrants on board that in exchange for working on a cotton plantation, 
They would receive homes, health care, schooling, and at the end of their four-year contract, 16 acres of land and back wages. Now, what is that exactly? Let me describe what this is, what he's promising here. These are newly freed black immigrants. They were slaves. Uh, first of all, did the federal government have power to free these people is a big question. They were in Virginia. So they were in federally occupied lines. Mid-April day, you're talking about after the Emancipation Proclamation has been issued. Uh, but if they were in you know, federal territory, they weren't really free. If they're in Confederate territory, they're technically not really free either. But the amazing thing about this is what has just been described here is not freedom. It's indentured servitude. There's another name for that. It's called slavery. So, hey, if you'll just be a slave for 16 years, or four years, I'm sorry, if you'll be a slave for four years, we'll give you 16 acres of land and some money back in return. In the meantime, we're going to treat you like you would be treated on the plantation, which is provided homes, health care, not schooling, though in some cases you did have that, but also clothing. You're going to get those things that you would have gotten on the plantation in the South. You see, so they're not really changing their condition that much. They're going to get a little education, which again, some would actually get on the plantation as well. Even though it was illegal, you would still get it there. I mean, there's a reason why Frederick Douglass could read when he escaped, because some slaves had that. And this was more common than people realize. You had a number of educated former slaves in the South who rose to political power in the years right after the war was over. So that was all going on anyways. But regardless, this is indentured servitude. So they're not really free at this point. They're indentured servants. Quote, the intelligent Negro may enter upon a life of freedom and independence, conscious that he has earned the means of livelihood, and at the same time discipline himself to the duties, the pleasures, and wants of free labor, Cock had written in his proposal. So he had pitched this to Abraham Lincoln in 1862, and Lincoln had signed off on it because Cock had traveled out to um, to London, and he had witnessed the uh, the option of cotton production at a place like Haiti. Now, Southerners had been interested in expanding into the South Caribbean and South America for years. They thought this would have been a natural place to to have more slave states. Ultimately, they thought that. You could have, uh, you could control these areas under the United States government, and that would be beneficial to the economy of the United States because you could have more plantation states. And of course, when you're making a lot of money on sugar and cotton and these kind of cash crops, well, why not? It made natural, it made logical sense to have these places under control of the United States and make more money for the U.S. But make more money for them too, right? But of course, that didn't happen. But here, Lincoln is actually interested in Haiti. He's interested in South America. He's interested in Africa. He's interested in all these areas. But the thing is, nobody really wanted them. That was always the block. He couldn't really find a place to put slaves or former slaves. Yet by, by the end of the voyage at that May, so they leave in April, by the end of the voyage in May, two dozen black passengers had died of smallpox. Those who landed found their lives worse than the ones they had when they left. Instead of promised homes, they were made to sleep on dirt in small huts fashioned from palmetto and brush. Cock was despotic in his work demands. Hunger grew rampant. Malnourishment took root. Plans for a revolt took shape. A U.S. government official visiting the island found these settlers with tears, misery, and sorrow pictured in every countenance. 
The disastrous mission, envisioned as the first installment of a grand colonization scheme that would settle 5,000 black people on the island, had a singularly powerful backer, Abraham Lincoln. This is where the Lincoln scholars will go nuts. <gasps> you can't, I mean, this is like, I mean, this is, even the image on the, on the post is hilarious because it's the Lincoln Memorial. This is taking down the man in the American Parthenon. You can't do that. You can't take down Abraham Lincoln. That would be horrible. You can't take this guy down. He is the great Saint Abe. Saint Abraham is wonderful. The 16th president had agreed to the terms of the contract with Cock on December 31st, 1862, on the very eve, proclaiming an end to slavery for about 3 million black men, women, and children. But that's not true. It didn't proclaim the end of slavery for anybody. Not one slave was freed by it. It was in the territory they didn't control. Lincoln even knew that. And in fact, the proclamation, the, the preliminary proclamation in particular, actually exempted areas that were, it even the proclamation itself, exempted areas that were still under Confederate control. Or, I'm sorry, still under Union control. Right? So it exempted, like, New Orleans, for example, which was under Union control. That wasn't in the proclamation. It was exempt. So the fact is, you have a proclamation that's supposedly freeing 3 million people that doesn't free anybody. This is, again, a stupid part of the essay. It's kind of wanting to go in on Abraham Lincoln, but then at the end of the day, pulling back and not really telling the whole story. Lincoln didn't free anybody. Now, as I talked about in a previous podcast, there would be a de facto effect of this in some areas where slaves would hear this and then they would try to rush to federal lines where they were put in work camps, kind of like the cock work camp. You go and then people die. This is Jim Downs sick from freedom. This is exactly what happens. So you, you don't really have a situation here that is freedom for anybody involved in the institution of slavery. Anybody that was a slave. There's no plan. This is the greatest downfall of the entire process. It's why Kirkpatrick Sale wrote his book, Emancipation Hell. Because it's emancipation and the way it was carried out that was the greatest tragedy for the American slave. Because there was nothing but freedom on the other side of it. Except misery, sickness, and all kinds of other bad things. And that's not what they expected. They wanted the United States government to take care of them just as they had been taking care of the plantation. That wasn't going to happen. Lincoln wasn't going to let that happen. And uh, even in this case where you have indentured servitude, it wasn't going to happen. See, slavery then would exist for four more years on Haiti. But Lincoln freed the slaves. He didn't free anybody. It's a, it's a ridiculous statement. Plus, we also have to understand that... Uh, Lincoln, in December of 1862, had proposed a constitutional amendment that would address this issue and would also allow for gradual emancipation in the United States up until about 1900. At that time, you would have had slavery exist till perhaps 19, the 1920s in the U.S. So Lincoln was coming up with all kinds of things that would not make you think he was the great emancipator. All that's out there. It's public record. The Ilavash project, along with other colonization plans that never came to fruition in Central and South America and the European West Indies, complicate the enduring image of Lincoln as the great emancipator, savior of African Americans, one of the most widely admired presidents in U.S. history. Well, of course they do. That's why the neoconservatives and the Straussians can't stand this stuff. 
But when you bring this up, well, you're just you're just playing into the hands of the wokes of the wokies. No, you're not. You're simply telling the story of Abraham Lincoln. Maybe he doesn't deserve a memorial. Maybe when we start talking about tearing down memorials, as I wrote in the blurb for Tom DiRenzo's latest book on Lincoln, The Problem with Lincoln, if people actually knew the stuff, they'd show up in Washington, D.C. with sledgehammers. Because maybe there's uh, some more complexity to this issue. If we're going to go full woke, well, then everything needs to come down. Take down all the stuff that would be put up to white supremacists around the United States, including union figures like Abraham Lincoln. Let's take it all down. Uh, I mean, it, that's, that's where we should be going with this, not simply picking and choosing. Well, these guys in the South, they're the bad guys. No, no, no. When you start getting all this and you start, all of it should just stay up, frankly. Because if you start looking at the complexity, well, then there's really no good guys if you're just going to talk about race relations in America at this particular time period. And this is where they, they kind of have, well, yeah, you're right. These people were, were bad on this issue, but they weren't traitors. <laughs> so we should admire, because they weren't traitors. We should admire them. And they put the, the United States on the pathway to ending slavery. They also did this, right? So, anyways. Americans have so revered Lincoln that they have often placed him above his times, a period in which he and the vast majority of other white Americans held deeply racist beliefs and believed in black colonization, said Sebastian M. Page, a British historian and author of an acclaimed book. Now, this is the Magnus and Page book. Notice they, don't, they mention Magnus once in the piece, but Page and Magnus... Um, wrote this book, is Colonization After Emancipation. And um, it's a really interesting book because they claim that Lincoln was still planning for colonization even until the day he died. He didn't stop thinking about this. He thought about it through 1865, even though this thing failed. Many prominent U.S. historians have argued that Lincoln's public support for colonization was primarily designed to placate racist white voters opposed to emancipation, or that the period after the Emancipation Proclamation represented a turning point in his thinking as African Americans began to fight and die for their country. But Page takes a contrarian view. His research unearthed records of colonization schemes into 1864 that Lincoln, quote, did not publicize rather deliberately, and that historians have overlooked, Page said, undermining the notion that the president's support was primarily a public act for racist white audiences. I mean, Lincoln himself was part of the racist white audience. Taken together, he believes his plans completely sink the idea that colonization was anything other than sincere and lifelong for Abraham Lincoln. I mean, I think this is, the book is pretty conclusive in this. Now, I know a lot of Lincoln historians and scholars, oh, no, 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 no. You can't say this because, you know, there's this and this and this. But I think the evidence is there that Page and Magnus were onto something. From the beginning of his political career in the Illinois legislature in the 1830s and 40s, Lincoln publicly opposed the enslavement of African Americans. In 1837, he co-signed a protest to state resolutions against abolition, declaring that the institution of slavery is founded both in injustice and bad policy. So yes, Lincoln was against slavery. Yeah, I mean, he was anti-slavery even as a young man. This is true. No one would argue that Lincoln wasn't anti-slavery. 
But he wasn't an abolitionist, which is a difference, and he wasn't a racial egalitarian. He simply just didn't want slavery in Illinois, which actually was because of his racist views, right? I mean, this is what you have to get to with all of this. These are the books by Leon Litvak, North of Slavery, or Bernwanger, uh, The Frontier Against Slavery. These people didn't want slavery because they didn't want it in their state because they didn't want the competition from black people, free and slave. They didn't want it. That was the whole point. So the piece says, Lincoln was not then an abolitionist, deferring to the states to decide whether to eradicate slavery. And like most all European Americans at the time, the president viewed whites as superior. Quote, there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races from living together on terms of social and political equality. He said in 1858, in one of the famous debates with Stephen Douglas, as he unsuccessfully vied for a U.S. Senate seat. Quote, and inasmuch as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, there must be a position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. This is Abraham Lincoln saying this. 1858. These are very famous quotes. Now what um, what Lincolnites will often do is say, well, yeah, Lincoln might have said that, but he changed his mind. I don't think he really ever changed his mind at all. He never really changed his mind. That would have been political suicide, even after the war. He didn't change his mind after that point. And yet Lincoln professed a belief that black people should have the right to live in peace and enjoy the fruits of their own labor. He also foresaw white mob violence in the event black people were freed. Again, this is, I think, true. Lincoln did say these things. He said that he wanted black people to be able to get to work and earn their own. I mean, this is something that was true. This raised a practical question. If slavery is unjust and freedom is untenable, What should the United States do with all of its black people? Again, this is the very prominent position among many Southerners uh, in in this period of time, the antebellum period. He despised the process, I'm sorry, he he despaired of the prospects of peaceful racial coexistence, and particularly if the emancipation of African Americans came about, Page said. In his quandary, Lincoln was in good company. Many members of the American Colonization Society, founded in 1816, shared his beliefs, claiming that immigration was the, in the best interest of the black people. A century ago, Mississippi's Senate voted to send all the state's black people to Africa. In that, there was almost surely a heavy dose of self-delusion. This isn't particular to Lincoln, but it's always, always about other whites, Page said. It's basically a big hand-washing by white would-be do-gooders and maybe, and who maybe haven't really addressed their own issues. So you know, it's it's uh, you know a way to rid something that you think is is an issue. In the years before Lincoln joined its ranks in 1856, the society embarked on projects to send willing black people to the West African Republic of Liberia. Yet over the course of decades, only about 15,000 made the journey exposing a critical weakness in colonizers' plans. African-Americans overwhelmingly rejected the idea of self-deporting. This is also true. But, of course, they didn't have any money. And uh, there were always people pushing for more money from the federal government. The federal government needed to take this up. The federal government needed to push this message because that would provide more resources for this. 
Their ancestors had been in the United States much longer, whereas white Americans on average tended to be much more recent European immigrants, Page said. Now, it depends on which section you're talking about there. If you're looking at the North, that's true. If you're looking at the South, not necessarily. Uh, you had a pretty long coexistence of white and black Southerners in the South. Generations, in fact. The South was much more homogenous, whereas the North had a large number of immigrants, Germans, Irish, uh, of course the English, people moving into that region. Uh, after the potato famine, for example, and the revolutions of 1848, a lot more immigrants in the North compared to in the South. And this actually helped the Union Army as well, because you could get these people right off the boat, pay them a few hundred bucks, send them out to fight Johnny, uh, uh, Johnny Reb, and uh, that would be three hots and a cot, basically and some money. Abolitionists, both white and black, were also repulsed, viewing mass resettlement as impossible to implement and former enslaved people as capable of integrating as equals into U.S. society. But um, that would be the more radical element. I mean, you're talking about a very small percentage of the population that believed in integration. The North wasn't integrated. It was it, they, they came up with Jim Crow. It was racially segregated. And you would have that throughout the West, I mean, Midwest too. Segregation was the norm. There was no push for integration. Yes, there could be a push for uh, emancipation, but then you would bottle these people up in the South because they didn't want them in the North. In fact, even after the war is over, I've mentioned this on this show before, after the war is over, Connecticut, Connecticut passed a law prohibiting blacks from voting. Connecticut. So they weren't interested in integrating or integration. They were interested in separation. Of course, Connecticut is the birthplace of Jim Crow. We live here, have a right to live here, and mean to live here, abolitionist Frederick Douglass wrote in his newspaper, The North Star, in 1849. Resistance, and a slew of impracticalities notwithstanding, Lincoln began his presidency in 1861 as a firm believer in black colonization. Before the end of the Civil War, his administration would have debated or attempted to implement overlapping plans to send free African-Americans to the uh, province of Panama and into early 1864 to points throughout the European West Indies. In a little-known episode detailed in uh, uh, his, their book, right, which is Colonization After Emancipation, which Page co-authored with American historian Philip W. Magnus, Lincoln met secretly at the White House in June of 1863 with a British representative of a landholding corporation. They discussed the fate of black people Lincoln had just freed through the Emancipation Proclamation. The promises flowed. In exchange for their help as farm laborers in British Honduras, now Belize, African Americans would receive land, homes, and support from the British government in beginning life anew. So send them down there. They're farm laborers. It's like indentured servitude. So we're going to take slaves and make them indentured servants. But there's a pathway to emancipation, right? It's, it's, a, it's not lifelong bondage, but Lincoln would still leave them as slaves, essentially. His whole point, right? And gradual, comp gradual compensated emancipation in the United States, too. And yet the plan never materialized because of British concerns over diplomatic repercussions if the South won the war. Because of the new demand for black soldiers prompted by the Emancipation Proclamation, because of disagreements as over colonization with Lincoln's own cabinet and more. Black colonization was almost doomed from the start, Page said. It needs concurrent consent from so many parties, he said. It needs it from legislators if you need funding. It needs it from the host state. And most of all, it needs it from the would-be African-American immigrants themselves. 
The African Americans aboard the Ocean Ranger appeared very willing to onlookers who watched them set sail for the Haitian island of Isle Lavache that April day in 1863. The emigrants were described as being wild with delight. They cried amen and shouted hallelujah, Frederick Bancroft, a prominent historian born in 1860, later wrote. Yet soon the settlers were beset by homesickness and depression of spirit. A doctor who had visited the island told the American Freeman's Inquiry Commission in December of 1863. Fever had swept the island, killing some. The soil failed to yield crops, and still Cock punished, uh, pun- yeah, punished his black charges for not working harder by withholding food. Soon the laborers were left to live off the decaying corn and salt pork from their ocean journey. By 1863, the black emigrants had driven a terrified cock off Ilaviche, prompting the Asian government to intervene militarily. The botch mission soon became a target of barbs in the media and from the radical Republicans who had always believed colonization was folly. On July 1st, 1864, Congress appeared to pull the plug on funding colonization efforts. I am glad that the president has sloughed off the idea of colonization, Lincoln's personal secretary John Hay wrote on that day, referencing the fiasco in Haiti and near Panama. Future historians lacking slam-dunk evidence of what Lincoln was thinking would emphasize Hay's words. But by 1865, Congress had earmarked $200,000 for colonization efforts. Page said, referring to a document by James Mitchell, Lincoln's Commissioner on Immigration. Other evidence points to a possible law rather than a sloughing off, he said. As the Civil War raged toward an end in the States, the U.S. government set sail to rescue the black survivors on Ilavish. Finally, on a March day in 1864, some 300 African Americans, half-naked, barefooted, bareheaded, according to an account in Richmond Wing at the time, debarked from the ship Navy ship Maria D. C. Day in Alexandria, Virginia. Like Lincoln, they had no way of knowing what would become of their nation's black people once the war ended. But like Lincoln, like Lincoln, they had no way of knowing. But Lincoln did have a plan. He told it to Alexander H. Stevens in 1865, root hog or die. That became the plan. There's no compensation for a former slave owner, so there's no capital to pay these people to do anything. There's no land. There's no education. There's no nothing. They're going to root hog or die. They're going to make it, or they're just going to go extinct like the dodo bird, which is what Emerson said about black people in the United States. This is what they said. And Stevens was shocked by this. You're going to take three million people that have nothing, and then you're going to expect them to survive when there's no capital? I mean, we don't even, the white Southerners were completely impoverished by this. How are we going to do any of this stuff? There's nothing. He was shocked because he was concerned about the people in his area, in his state. This is the whole thing that when you get into all the complexities of all this, the good guys aren't necessarily the good guys and the bad guys aren't necessarily the bad guys and how they viewed some of these things. So, I mean, it's amazing that what we have, what we've had over, over the history, particularly in the last, say, 100 years in the, in the Lincoln worshiping, has gotten so bad that this stuff was well known for a long time. Southerners pointed it out constantly. They talked about it all the time, and yet it was swept under because we got to make Lincoln into the American demigod. Now he's starting to be taken down, and the neoconservatives and the Straussians can't stand it. That's why the 1776 commission report was just absolutely stupid. And why all these Lincoln lovers should abandon Abraham Lincoln as some kind of hero conservative. Anyways, um... He wasn't really conservative. No, he wasn't as far left as the radical Republicans, but he was pushing to the left. All right. This is a really interesting piece. The fact that the Washington Post published it, I found interesting as well. 
Got some more good stuff this week, but I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.